It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different Hey everyone and welcome to the Growth Hub podcast brought to you by growth marketing agency Advanced B2B. It's your host here Edward Ford and today we're joined by Alan Gannett, former CEO and founder of TrackMaven, now chief strategy officer at Skyward and author of The Creative Curve. Now in this episode we explore the world of creativity, how to be more creative and what it means for marketers. And in his book, The Creative Curve, Alan challenged the mythology around creative genius and identified the science and secrets behind achieving breakout commercial success in any field. Now, it's a wonderful book, and after reading it, I asked Alan if he'd come on the show to break down creativity and talk about it with us. And in this episode, we discuss what creativity actually is and how we can become a creative genius. The Creative Curve itself, a four-step framework that introduces the laws of creativity as we break down and unpack each step. Examples in creativity from JK Rowling, Pixar and Ben and Jerry's ice cream, how we as marketers can become more creative and some creative marketing initiatives Alan and the TrackMaven team have run in the past and we also hear how Alan once got an interview with basketball superstar Kobe Bryant. As ever stay tuned to the end of the episode where Alan takes on our fast five challenge so here is episode 31 of the Growth Hub podcast with Alan Gannett chief strategy officer at Skyward. Welcome to another episode of the Growth Hub podcast and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Alan Gannett to the show CEO and founder at TrackMaven now chief strategy officer at Skyward after the merger and author of the creative curve. So Alan, thanks so much for joining us today here on the Growth Hub podcast. Thanks for having me, man. And thanks for having that awesome accent. Well, I guess for <laughs> you, it's not an accent. For me, it's an accent. You think I have an accent, which is no. wrong. But. Well, the, the, interesting, <laughs> the interesting thing is that my accent has changed quite a lot. I have lived in Finland for over 10 years. So all my friends back home in the UK are like, oh, what's happened to your accent? You, you don't really sound English anymore. So it's, it's a bit of a mix between Nordic, British mashup, but we'll, yeah, we'll work with it. We like, yeah, we'll go with it. Exactly, exactly. Now, since publishing your book last year, you've spoken about it on NBC. I saw you've been featured in Forbes and Observer Magazine, and now here you are on the Growth or Podcast. So really uh, hitting peak PR here, I think. But um, <laughs> But this episode is all about creativity and what it means to marketers. But I think a good starting point is creativity itself, as we all have different views about what creativity is. And we typically associate it with like artists or musicians or brainstorming like innovative ideas. So let's get some clarification. What actually is creativity? Yeah, so it's really interesting because I think in Western culture, and there's different versions of creativity in different cultures, but in Western culture, you know, primarily when we think of creativity, we think of Albert Einstein, Picasso, Steve Jobs, all these people, and we've mistakenly also associated with productivity. So when we talk about creativity, we talk a lot about like these people who create lots of things, and I think for a lot of us, we've internalized it as like these creators. Now, the issue is that definition actually doesn't hold up to water because there's lots of people who are productive, but we wouldn't say they're creative. There's lots of people who write lots of novels, but the novels are terrible, right? So there's actually something that must be deeper to what the definition of creativity is. And so to answer that question, you can turn to sociology, which has a really wonderful definition of creativity, which is that creativity is the ability to create things that are both novel and valuable, novel and valuable and the and is really important because 
just creating something new, well, that's productivity. That's not creativity. It's about creating things that are both new and valuable. And that's where creativity becomes really fascinating because value is a social phenomenon. For something to be deemed valuable, we all have to agree that it's valuable. And so really, when you're talking about creativity, you're talking about a social phenomenon. And that's what makes it so fascinating because that is not at all this idea of there being sort of like an objective truth that some people are creative and some people aren't. There's really some people are able to create things that society deems as creative and some people are able to do it over and over again. And those are the creative geniuses. Yeah. And you mentioned their creative geniuses. So if we take a moment to think about some of history's greatest creative minds like Mozart, JK Rowling, the Beatles and so forth, we could go on. But are these creative geniuses, are they born or are they made? Yeah, so this is one of the really interesting things when I was diving into the science around this. So basically, for the book, The Creative Curve, um, what I did was I look at creativity under three lenses. So one is I interviewed living creative achievers. These are, you know, Oscar winners, Tony Award winners, Michelin star chefs, billionaires, like big eclectic group of people. Then I also looked at historical stories of creative genius. And then I also interviewed and did the research around all of the sort of leading science on creativity. What I thought was so interesting is that when you look at the science around creativity, there's actually a lot of it. Like we've been studying creativity across psychology, neuroscience, anthropology, sociology, uh, psychology, all these different things. And the consensus is that, you know, talent is essentially a learned phenomenon. And really what we mistake as natural talent is typically the result of compounding advantage where you have some kid who at five had a parent who was kind of pushy and pushed them into great things, or maybe they had a wrecked home life and they found escape in the arts and it drove them and they started getting positive feedback and started craving that. But if you start young enough, you can become quite talented. I mean, Mozart's a great example. Mozart um, at the age of three, his father said, you know, little Mozart, you need to become a great musician. And he's three years old, right? And wants the affection of his father and also can't say no. And he started taking lessons with the best music teachers in all of Europe and practiced three hours a day, seven days a week. Now, you can take any child on the planet. At the age of three, if you tell them that the conditional love of their father is based on them becoming a great musician and you have to practice three hours, seven days a week, and you're gonna have the best teachers in the entire continent. You're gonna have a pretty good damn kid by the time you're 17, which is when Mozart wrote his first concerto, which by the way, isn't even that good of a concerto. So like you have this notion of Mozart sort of popping out of the womb composing music, but that's fanciful at best. Yeah, and is creativity purely reserved for the arts or is it also applicable to other fields, sciences, for example? Because I think a lot of examples when we start talking about creativity somehow lean towards the arts. Yeah, I think of creativity as, you know, this ability to create things that society deems as valuable. And so I think of, you know, a scientist who comes up with a, you know, a new and interesting and valuable theory as creative. I think of uh, people in business as creative. So I tend to think of creativity much broader than just the arts. And I think you see this, but there's a lot of people who, once they learn how to, how to learn new creative skills, they sort of move between, um, they move between fields and i don't think that's because they have this like natural born talent for everything i think so they've learned how to learn and that's what's a very valuable skill yeah and you often hear people say that oh i'm not a creative person or i'm more of an analytical thinker even like i wish i I yeah exactly i (laughs) i wish i could be more creative so does everyone have the power to be creative or is it only reserved for a chosen few 
Yeah, so basically what the science shows us is that anyone with a sort of average IQ or higher has the same creative potential. Now, science also shows us is that there's only a small group of people who are creative achievers. So we know there's this giant gap between potential and achievement. And my theory is that essentially that gap is caused by nurturing society. You know, there's a reason why you see many more great men and great women of arts and science in cultures that tend to have a lot of money and prosperity because those are places where you can fund education, you can fund your patrons for the arts. And so that gap between potential and achievement, that's where I think you have both the nurture component and the society component come into play. And since that's the thing that causes that gap, as a result, I think as people, we have the ability to learn how to cross that gap. You know, I talk in the book about, for example, in sociology, there's this effect called clustering, which is basically that um, creative communities emerge and then become denser and denser over time because of the network effect of, okay, if you move to San Francisco, then, um, well, you're going to be closer and be able to interact with all these other people who are in your same tech field. So then you move there. And then because you move there, the network effect value of San Francisco is higher. So other people move there and you just have this mm, compounding yeah. and compounding advantage. So obviously if you're born in San Francisco, you're going to have better access versus if you were born in, um, you know, a third world country. And so like these things are really important. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that it just so happens that, you know, there's a lot of you know, brilliant upper middle class kids who become world class musicians. And it's not because of the fact that they have parents who have the time and to push them and the money to get them lessons. Yeah, exactly. And I think we're, we're going to come on to discuss more about creativity and marketing specifically a little bit later on. But before that, um, now to help us be, become more creative, you did, like you said, a ton of research, you developed and wrote your book, and you uh, developed what is known as the creative curve. And you identified four laws of creativity. So they are consumption, imitation, creative communities, and iterations. So I was thinking we could go through this framework together and break it down. So let's start with law one. Creativity starts with consumption. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, so basically the whole idea here, and you know, there's a lot to unpack, but basically you know, the whole idea of consumption is that one of the notions we have when it comes to creators is that um, you know, they're these very active people, right? They're always doing. And we almost talk about that in antithesis to consumers, right? Consumers are consuming, creators are creating. There's this like really annoying social media meme you might've seen that's like, you know, 90% of people create, 9% engage, 1%, uh, or sorry, 90% of people consume, 9% engage, 1% create, hashtag hustle, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like <laughs> stupid, but it's also wrong. Because one of the things I found when I was interviewing these creative achievers, these creative achievers are all massive consumers of their niche. I interviewed Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix, who spent his teenage years as a clerk at a video rental store watching every movie in the store. The same thing applies to Quentin Tarantino, who I didn't interview, but you hear the same story about how he literally worked at a video store and watched every single video in the store. J.K. Rowling, you know, had these parents who were always fighting. So to get away, she would go in her room and just read books and books and books. In college, she had library finds. She had so many books out. And so what you find is that consumption is a hugely important part of the creative process. And there's a lot of reasons why. Um, but one of the main reasons is that how our brain works is we essentially have you know, our left hemisphere and our right hemisphere. And our left hemisphere, we do logical processing, analytical processing. Our right hemisphere is where we do, you know, quote unquote, divergent thinking, essentially creativity. It's where we connect you know, new and different ideas together. Um, 
but that right hemisphere is always working. It's always doing stuff. And only once it comes up with an idea does it sort of say, hey, I got an idea. And the issue is that um, people experience these as quote unquote flashes of genius. Like they're in the shower and they have a great idea. And they're like, whoa. And really what that is, is those are moments in your left hemisphere, which is the more active hemisphere, sort of muted, right? It's not that your commute's inspiring or the shower's inspiring, although maybe you've been working out. It's that those are moments when your left hemisphere is quiet and you can hear the ideas that are percolating in your right hemisphere, which is sort of the more low key hemisphere. So what's interesting though is, okay, so if we understand the notion that our right hemisphere is always trying to work, it's always trying to create things. Well, then the thing that's most important is to feed it, right? If you want to connect the dots, you have to have the dots to connect. You're not just going to come up with new ideas about music if you're not heavily experienced to music. You're not going to come up with ideas for new characters or books if you don't read lots of books. And so consumption is hugely important. One of the reasons why is it gives your right hemisphere the raw ingredients to actually be successful at coming up with new and interesting ideas. Yeah, okay, love it. So the trick is to consume and then go and do something that will cause your left hemisphere to kind of chill, like Shut up. basically yeah. go and shout, <laughs> consume and shout. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or drugs, apparently. Just kidding, don't do drugs. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, okay, the first law then is consumption. And then from there, the second is imitation, which actually seems somewhat contradictory, but you know, it's heavily used in pop songs and storytelling. So how does imitating others actually make you creative? Yeah, so basically one of the things that's really important to understand is that at the end of the day, um, when we talk about creativity, we tend to talk about, you know, things that are radically novel, right? And that's what we think of creativity. But as I mentioned before, it's actually not what creativity is. Creativity is creating things that are both novel and valuable. And so what's really interesting is that what scientists have found is the ideas that are most attractive to people are actually not the ideas that are radically novel, but the ideas that are a blend of the familiar and the novel. Ideas that are familiar enough to feel safe because we're scared of the unfamiliar, but yet novel enough to be interesting, to compel us. So we have these two contradictory urges, this pursuit of familiarity for safety and this pursuit of novelty for potential reward. So what happens is that these two urges intersect and they lead us to liking ideas that are blended the familiar and the novel, right? So um, you know, Apple's a great example. We think of Apple as creating radically new products, but that's not true, right? The, iPod was a better MP3 player. The iPhone was an iPod with a phone. The iPad was an iPhone without a phone, right? Like it's actually much more iterative. Um, and you see this obviously right now with the whole scooter thing where, you know, Segways came out, you know, 15, 20 years ago, maybe less. And, you know, they're sort of become like a thing just for, you know, shopping mall cops. And they're not really like a mainstream thing. They're kind of too weird. But Right now, there's all the scooter rental startups that are popping up and doing really well because it's a form factor that makes a lot more sense. Um, you have the sort of Uber you know, ride model where you don't actually have to own it. And so that's more familiar. So it's novel, but it's also familiar. This is why some people start companies that you know, are the same idea that 10 years later becomes a big hit, but 10 years ago wasn't. And so as a result, because you need to create ideas that are a blend of the familiar and the novel, what that means for us is that you actually have to understand really tightly, well, what will be the right level of familiar? And so what you find is that creative achievers, they really focus heavily on understanding the patterns, the structures, the frameworks 
of whatever their niche is. So novelists, for example, like what's the hero's journey? Um, you know, songwriters, for example, there's a certain way in which if you're writing a pop song, for example, a certain way in which the chorus and the verse intersect and overlap that makes the chorus catchy. There's these rules that people have found that people like. And by using those rules, you create that familiar baseline and then add your own novel twist. So what you find is that a lot of these creators have spent a lot of time really focusing on the people who've come before them and focusing on learning the structure not the copying the content, but rather learning and copying the structure of those past great creatives so that they can then add their own novel twist. You know, there's this really wonderful, and I hate quoting Kanye, but there's this really wonderful <laughs> Kanye quote about how um, great artists take an update, which is so funny because it's true, but it's also stealing a Steve Jobs quote, which is that great artists steal an update, which is funny because that's stealing a Pablo Picasso quote, which is great artists steal. So like you see this over and over again, but basically this notion that if you really want to create something that's viewed as society as valuable, it's not about creating something radically novel. No one wants to watch an eight hour movie with no protagonists. It's about taking something that people are familiar with, like a Western, for example, and putting it in space. That's what we call Star Wars. Star Wars is literally a Western in space. It's the same exact story arc, but it's in space and George Lucas says this, but that's what makes it compelling. Like we understand the plot, we understand what's going on. And so we're excited about the new twist that they've put on it. And so imitation is hugely important because it allows you to learn how to do that in a very thoughtful way. Yeah, love it. And this is actually the first time in the history of the Growth Hub podcast that anyone has quoted Kanye. So that's <laughs> the first. Breaking so down barriers. Yeah, exactly. Now we, tend to imagine creatives as these solo geniuses, but that's not necessarily the case. And you wrote that we cannot ignore the social aspects of creativity. And this leads us to law three, which is creative communities. And you mentioned or referenced them earlier on in, in one of your previous answers, but you identified four key supporting roles that we all need in order to be creative. So can you tell us about creative communities and, and explain these four characters you need in your life that will help you be more creative? Yeah, I'll go a little bit. I, I don't want to go into all of them just because we'll be here all day. But <laughs> basically, basically, the way to think about it is, you know, we have this notion of the creative genius. And there's on History Channel in the United States right now, there's like a show literally called Genius. And it's like about Einstein and Picasso and Steve Jobs and all these people. And we sort of hold them up and we're like, wow, like, look at all the stuff they've done. And this is a really dangerous notion. And it's dangerous for two reasons. The first reason is that it's actually wrong, and we'll talk about that in a second. And second, it sets up this idea in people's head that if they aren't able to do all of the facets of creativity, then they won't be successful. But the reality is, is that Steve Jobs had lots of help. Like, literally on day one, he had Steve Wozniak, who actually designed the Apple one. He had, they raised money pretty early on. They had multiple employees. I mean, Elon Musk is a great example of this, where he has some of the world's best rocket scientists at SpaceX and the best auto engineers um, at Tesla. But yet we sort of put him on the cover and we're like, wow, this like mad scientist. And I think it's a really dangerous notion because what you actually find when you look at these creative achievers, what they are is self-aware. They're self-aware, right? Look at Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs knew that he needed help actually designing the computer, right? So he found Steve Wozniak. He found someone who helped support his weaknesses. 
But yet often, if you're an inspiring creator, what you look for is you look for people, you look for people who are a lot like you. You look for people who you quote unquote, you gel with. But the problem is that those people, they don't actually fill in your gaps. You need people who fill in your gaps, who even create that friction that allows one plus one to equal three. And so I think we have this sort of fanciful notion. I mean, you look at like our notion of book authors, right? Like my book, even like my name's on the cover. Great. But like I have a copy editor, an editor, a research assistant, um, agent, publisher, marketing team, publicist. Like there's this whole sort of crew of people who actually go and take something and make it become what it is. But yet my name's the one on the cover. And so I think oftentimes culturally we over-focus on the sort of marketing and PR version of creativity, which inherently pushes one name because that's a lot more easy to understand and digest and it's more marketable, but it's also not true. And I think that's what makes it so dangerous. Yeah, exactly. So, this then leads us on to the fourth law, which is iterations, which Ben and Jerry's, the uh, ice cream producers, <laughs> use as part of their own creative process. So tell us, how could ice cream teach us about law four of the creative curve that is iterations? Yeah, so um, I, probably one of the most fun days of the whole book process was I spent a day with the flavor team of Ben and Jerry's. Um, which is like literally the best job in America. And like, weirdly enough, like they're all skinny, which I think is very, you know, there's a conspiracy there. And what, it, what is so interesting is that you know, they have to come up with like 10 new flavors a year. So they're constantly creating new flavors and their brand is being a little bit weird, right? So for them, it's really important to create things that are unique, but yet they're also a business. So it has to be sellable. So how do they do this? So, you know, went to the lab and I sort of thought like, oh, they'd be like tasting stuff and experimenting, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, it's actually <laughs> this very iterative data-driven process. And this is actually what you find when you look closer at almost any creative process. What they do is throughout the entire process, they try and bring in as much audience feedback as possible. So what Ben and Jerry specifically does is every year, you know, their, their flavor team spends most of the year consuming trends, sometimes literally like they'll go to cities to try out the different bars and restaurants and see what the food trends are, but consuming trends online, in person, magazines, whatever. And then they put together a list of 200 ideas, 200, they call them flavor profiles, things that they think people will find interesting. And then they literally send out an email survey where they take the, the list of 200, they chop it up, they send it out to people and they ask two questions for each flavor idea. One, how likely are you to buy this flavor? And two, how unique it is, which is basically how familiar it is and how novel it is. And from that, what they're looking for is they're actually not looking for the ideas that people say are gonna sell the most because then all they'd ever have is brownie caramel, you know, crunch flavors. <laughs> but they're also not looking for the flavors that are super high and unique because they need it to also sell. What they're looking for is that balance. And so what they're doing is they're operationalizing this idea of the creative curve. They're operationalizing this idea of creating things that are familiar with a novel twist. And that's what I think is so important. You see this, for example, um, in movies. Movies do testing and feedback. I mean, when they come out with movie trailers, they're doing all sorts of testing. And so what you find is when you look at any of these creative processes, whether it's food or startups or whatever, I mean, startups, we call this the lean startup methodology, right? Like what you find is that the most successful creatives 
are really focused on bringing data in from their audience early and often to understand where they are on that creative curve. And then second, once they've done that, to actually keep iterating over and over again and refining it to make sure it's in that sweet spot. So that's what I think is so interesting is that even when you look at something kind of silly like um, ice cream, um, ice cream, then um, it's actually much more of a process. Yeah. Wow. This is awesome. So, okay. We now know what creativity is. We've gone through the four laws of the creative curve. So what does this then all mean for us as marketers working in B2B and SaaS? So how can we apply the laws of the creative curve to make us more creative marketers? So I think the thing that are really important to understand as a marketer is it's not about doing the same thing you did last year that was really popular. It's also about not creating something that's radically new. What it's about is creating something that is that blend of the familiar and the novel, something that will catch people's attention, something that they've seen before but is done in a new and interesting way, right? That's what you have to focus on. And to do that, what you have to do is two things. I mean, mainly it's follow those rules, right? Consumption, imitation, but also it's change your mindset. Right, too often as marketers or as creatives, we have this notion that like, oh, we're not creative enough. We have to hire an agency. And these are all stories we tell ourselves. These aren't actually true, right? What the science shows is we all have creative potential. What differentiates some people versus others is some people become intentional about accessing that potential. And so what I think you need to do is really understand what are the stories you tell yourself and why? Right? Was there some parent, was there some teacher who told you, you know, don't become creative, you'll become a barista, you know, don't get an English degree, whatever it is, right? But we're conditioned from a very young age to believe that creativity equals bad. It equals poor, it equals bad. So you have to go and do this other stuff. And then when we're adults and we realize that actually all business is about creativity, we're like, well, I'm not that person, right? But you have to backtrack. You have to unwind that programming. You have to change your mindset. Yeah, exactly. So what would you say is some of the most creative things you've done from a marketing perspective over the course of your career as a founder and CEO and marketer working in SaaS? Yes. So what we do, we try and find, we find our best marketing channel is events. So basically, you know, we do, we've for years done like trade shows and um, conferences and webinars and all this kind of stuff. And what we found is that, um, you know, we would do these booths and they would work but they wouldn't really get us the, they wouldn't really get us the attention that we were looking for on, you know, in the show and after the show. And so what we decided to do is stop spending money on a bigger and bigger booth, but rather try and focus on creating things that would be unique. So what we started doing is these really like quirky things, but they're really fun. So like this year, for example, content marketing world, we did an, um, a nineties arcade. And so we had like, or eighties arcade. So we had like the big neon jackets. We had, you know, candy from the 80s, we, we, rented, um, we rented different arcade machines, we rented a claw machine, and people loved it. They were coming, they were taking pictures, they were doing all this stuff. Uh, the year before that, you know, we talk a lot about marketers throwing spaghetti against the wall. And so what we did <laughs> is we got this giant target made, and we put plexiglass in front of it, and then we rented from a, so we bought from a caterer 20 pounds of cooked spaghetti, and we literally let people throw spaghetti against the wall and try and hit the middle of the target. And like, it was incredibly messy, and literally the, the exhibit hall staff was like gonna kill us. But if you Google Track Maven 
um, spaghetti wall, you'll see all these photos of people who are like super excited about engaging with the And like the spaghetti literally cost, I think it was like $80, right? Like it's like, that was the cost. And so I think too often, you know, you can look at what's familiar, which is have a bigger booth, have screens, have all this stuff. But if you add your own novel twist, it's lower cost and it's more effective. Now, that means you have to take a risk, right? But my personal opinion is if you do this stuff right, it's not that risky because it's not about creating something crazy new. It's about creating something that's just a little bit new. So I think this notion of creativity as risky in business is kind of silly. Yeah. And are there certain things that you do to really foster a culture of creativity, both at TrackMaven and now at Skywood? I think it's all about coaching. So I think when it comes to creativity, the biggest impediment in most organizations is that people have told themselves these stories about themselves not being creative. Like people have told themselves these stories about their potential, their talent, their all this stuff. So the critical thing to do is to really deprogram that. I think as a manager and as a leader, you can do that through coaching, through talking to people, through understanding like why do they think these things about themselves and helping them understand that those aren't true. Those aren't the actual truths of their potential. So I think coaching is really important. The other thing I think is really important is psychological safety. One of the things you find in organizations that are creative is they've made it psychologically safe to fail. And it's not just saying it's okay to fail here. Like that's not actually going to get done. What it means is it's actually part of the process is failure. So like Ben and Jerry's is a great example. So I walk into Ben and Jerry's, here I am, this sort of like CEO capitalist guy, whatever. And I start talking to flavor people and I ask to me, which is a very obvious question, which is, hey, um, hey, um, so like, you know, when you come up with a flavor, like you must get a bonus based on how well it sells. And they were like, what? No. I was like, what do you mean? And they were like, that's crazy. And I was like, why? They're like, flavors fail for different reasons. Like, what's important to us is like, when something fails is how we learn from that. And they're really serious about that. Like, they told me the story of how they created a flavor that was um, popcorn and M&Ms, which is like, if you've ever done it, it's great. And they create an ice cream flavor of that, which sounds delicious. And they did it in the test kitchen and tasted great. Like, people were like, this is going to be amazing. But then the problem was, when they actually manufactured it, by the time it was manufactured, by the time it was put in the trucks, by the time it got to the store freezer, by the time it got home, the moisture from the ice cream started seeping into the popcorn. So the popcorn became soggy. So it was gross. It was disgusting. Now, they could have said, oh, wow, we're failures. Like, this is terrible. Like, woe is us. We're going to fire someone. But instead, what they did, I think is so interesting, what they realized that, oh, actually, if we put something hard in ice cream, well, then in a few weeks, it'll become soft. So what they did is they started putting hard cookies in ice cream. And by the time it gets to your home freezer, they're soft. So you have this soft cookie dough type taste. So like that's actually really wonderful learning. And so that failure wasn't a failure, right? It was just part of the process. Pixar, um, if you ever have a chance, Ed Catmull wrote this great book, um, about Pixar's creative process called Creativity Inc. And basically the whole point of the book is that at Pixar, they created this process where the actual product of Pixar was not the movie. The movie is not the product. The innovation process was. How they made movies was the product. And so when they made a mistake, if it improved the process, then it was a success. And this sounds wishy-washy, but it's not wishy-washy when you look what happened. When Disney acquired Pixar, they put the Pixar executives in charge of Disney animation. 
Disney animation went from being terrible to being extremely successful by converting to this process. So psychological safety is not just a thing we talk about, right? Doing it well is actually a hard skill that you learn and then it actually is something you can take to other organizations. So I think those two things are the most important. One is that coaching element and two is creating that psychological safety where the process becomes the product. Yeah, this is great. And it's so great to know that the creative failure of putting popcorn in ice cream actually gave us the glory <laughs> that is totally. cookie dough in ice cream. That's so awesome. And how about yourself personally? Do you consider yourself to be creative and how do you boost your own creativity? Well, I think everyone's creative, right? So yes. So, uh, but I don't think that's special. I think everyone's creative. And so for me, um, you know, the things I do or when I want to learn about something or I want to enhance something is it's really about that consumption, that imitation, that finding, you know, people who will teach me those processes, those processes and those structures and we'll, we'll do that. So, so yeah, definitely. Um, but I think you're creative. I think anyone listening is creative. Like, I don't think that's a, you know, particularly special thing. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. So, Hey, Alan, this was great. And I think what we could do now is move to our closing questions and our fast five challenge. So all I'm going to do is ask you five questions and you just need to answer as quickly as possible. So are you ready? Do it. All right, let's get it. Okay. First question. What's the one book you would recommend others to read? Oh, um, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. I mean, it's a great example. It's basically a case study in how to operationalize creativity. So I think it's a great companion to my book. Um, and it's also just a very fun, you know, sort of it's told like a memoir. Yeah, it's an awesome book. And it's actually not the first time this book has come up during the Fast Five. So yeah, definitely check that out. Then second question, a SaaS company that you love and why? Oh, um, Drift. I mean, I think Drift is doing such a phenomenal job in their marketing. They basically have realized that, you know, people want content. So they're, um, they're basically showing all the sort of behind the scenes stuff about building this company and like the content's really rich and rewarding and you know, marketers love that kind of stuff and they're market to marketers. And so it, it's wonderful. So, I mean, I, I just enjoy their marketing, which I think means a lot. Yeah, exactly. The Drift guys have been super creative with their marketing. It's actually quite interesting to look at what they're doing and then apply the laws of the creative curve. You can see actually some, some big imitations. They're big on like consuming and learning and reading about marketing and really like, shines through in their marketing. So yeah, definitely big fans of Drift. So third question, your favorite place to read about marketing online? Ooh, um, I always love the CMI blog and also I, I think Anne Hanley's newsletter is really great. Yes, de definitely. Big fans of Anne Handley. So the fourth question then, your most important growth metric? Ooh, um, my most important growth metric, I'd say... Um, on a personal level, it's definitely, you know, making sort of new deep friends and connections. I think those, that's probably on the professional level. I think, you know, with any business, it's always customer satisfaction. I think, you know, ultimately if you have, you know, very excited customers, um, everything else, um, everything else sort of takes care of itself. Yeah, perfect. And we can't go through a podcast about growth marketing in B2B and SaaS without talking about metrics at least once. So that was the <laughs> fourth one. And then the final fifth question, your best piece of advice for fellow SaaS marketers. My best piece of advice for fellow SaaS marketers is to not get discouraged from focusing on building audience. And, you know, I think so often you go to conferences and people are like, it's all about ROI. 
And then, you know, a year later, people are like, why don't we have any ROI? And it's like, well, it's not all about ROI. You can only get ROI from the audience you have. So if you don't have an audience, you're not going to, it doesn't matter how high your conversion rate is. And so, you know, I think as marketers, sometimes we try and simplify things too much. And ultimately, I think a three-step sort of um, approach for marketing is like still very easy, but I think way more accessible and accurate, which is that you have, um, you know, awareness, engagement, conversion. And as a marketer, your job is to do all three. And if you just spend all your time on conversion, don't be surprised when you get terrible results because even the highest conversion rate from a tiny audience is still a tiny number. And so I think, um, you know, keeping that in mind and pushing back on that sort of you have, especially in most organizations, you have people from finance or sort of board members who are pushing for in marketing, you have to prove every dollar. And I think that's important, but I think you have to tell that story in context of the broader awareness, engagement, and conversion framework. Otherwise, you end up screwed. Yeah, exactly. I think you have done an amazing job of building an audience, especially on LinkedIn. And I remember the first time I ever saw you was a video that popped up on my feed when you were actually interviewing Kobe Bryant with one question. <laughs> Bonus sixth question. How did you get an interview with Kobe Bryant? Oh, I, I, he was at a conference. I just walked up to him. And okay. asked him. Like, sure, man. But it was like 11 second interview. Like it's literally, he answered my question with three words, but it was like the second highest performing video I ever did. So I won't complain. Yeah, that was cool. Uh, love it. Well, Alan, this was amazing. And I have to say a massive, massive thank you for joining us today. It's been a true pleasure having you on the Growth of Podcast with us. Awesome. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. That was Alan Gannett on creativity and how we as marketers can be more creative. So make sure you give Alan a shout out on Twitter. You can follow him at Alan, that's A-L-L-E-N. And we have links to his book, The Creative Curve and all other references in the show notes. So do let us know what you thought of the episode. And if you have any other thoughts or feedback, then you can always reach out to me on Twitter at Nordic Edward on LinkedIn or via email at Edward at Advanced B2B. .fi. So thank you guys so much for listening to the Growth Hub podcast brought to you by growth marketing agency Advanced B2B. This is your host Edward Ford signing off and make sure you check out advancedb2b.com for more content and resources on everything B2B SaaS growth. It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember it's the risk takers that are Single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different.